This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. My guest today has spent his academic career focusing on Russia. Dr. Brian Morosky is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at University of Florida, where he teaches courses on Russian domestic politics and Russian foreign policy, as well as how elections and political parties operate outside the United States. He has conducted research in Armenia, Georgia, Russia, and Ukraine, and was a Fulbright Scholar in Kiev from January through May of 2014. That was when Russia invaded and later annexed the Crimean Peninsula, which is now seen as a precursor to its full-scale war against Ukraine. Professor Morosky has published three books and numerous journal articles and book chapters. His most recent book, Party Politics in Russia and Ukraine, was published in June of 2022 by New York University Press. He was on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus earlier this month to give a presentation called Putin's War in Ukraine and Its Consequences. His talk was the final in a series of presentations for the 2023 Florida Gulf Coast University Provost's Seminar Series that's presented in partnership with the Naples Discussion Group. We got his take on the current state of Russian foreign policy in light of the Ukraine war and how its domestic politics and its citizens have been impacted. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Morosky, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you for having me. So the title of your talk that you're on campus for today is Putin's War in Ukraine and its Consequences. By consequences, are you mostly referring to Ukraine, Russia, the region, the world, or a little bit of all of it? A little bit of all. I think um, the primary focus probably is thinking about what this means for how the world order operates, the international community operates, right? And different visions of that with how much power the United States has, what, uh, how much power that Russia would like to have, um, why it sees itself as not empowered relative to the U.S., to China, and how that kind of motivates, and as well as this kind of historical legacy of being formerly being a superpower and how that kind of motivates uh, this war. Not the only, only, only motivation, but it is a motivation. And if Russia were to kind of have the opportunity to kind of change the international order, what that means for not the United States necessarily, um, but others, some small states. Not all small states, but um, some weaker powers. Uh, If we move from a view where countries have more sovereignty than what Russia would like them to have, uh, what does that mean for other uh, smaller countries in the neighborhood of these great powers? How much time have you spent in Russia? Well, it's been a while, um, but I made several trips, starting with my dissertation work in 1998 and then again in 1999. Actually, pre-dissertation work in 1998, um, four or five months, and then dissertation work in 1999 for four or five months. And then I was uh, made a couple trips in the early 2000s and then another trip in 2011 um, during the protests that resulted from fraudulent elections uh, related to the legislative election that preceded President Putin's return to power. So he was serving as prime minister from 2008 through 2012. Um, going into the 2011 legislative elections there, there was a lot of declining legitimacy for lots of different reasons. Um, and uh, there was a lot of evidence of, of election fraud, voter fraud, um, that brought tens if not hundreds of thousands of, of Russians into the streets. Um, given the trajectory of the ruling party and the uh, um, statements coming out of the Kremlin, such as announcing that Putin was coming back and that it was planned uh, four years ago, 
uh, and the discontent that was evident. And you were there during that. Well, I was there. Well, that's one of the reasons I went, right? Um, okay. So I had a, a, it was a, I just had a few weeks to go, um, but I could read the writing on the wall and figured that if uh, the way the Russian election cycles tended to work before they changed the constitution was that the legislative elections preceded the presidential elections. So my take on it was if it was going to be interesting, it would be um, hmm. the legislative elections. So that's when I went. And then you were in Ukraine in 2014 for Fulbright scholarship time. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the, I looked at the dates and like <laughs> the uh, invasion of the Crimean Peninsula happened during the time you were there in Ukraine, right? That's exactly right. So yeah, I, um, the way Fulbright works is that you apply basically a year and a half before you plan to go, or a year or so before you go. I, I was planning to go for the spring semester for personal family reasons. And so I applied with not having any idea of what was going to be unfolding uh, in 2012. Got the Fulbright in and did my orientation in summer 2013. And of course it was, well, it's November of, of 2013 that we start to see the um, initial protest by a move from the incumbent president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, to not sign an association agreement with the European Union and um, students and some uh, uh, other residents in Kyiv went out and protested. And that escalated quickly when uh, the regime use riot police against these students and bloodied a number of them. Um, and then people went to protest against a regime that didn't treat its people well. Um, so yeah, th- uh, that was occurring as I was preparing for the trip. We arrived in early January. Uh, and I have to say we, cause I went with my, fa- took my family uh, and were there through the, uh, the removal of, of Yanukovych and him fleeing all, uh, office and then fleeing Ukraine to the outbreak of pro-Russian um, protests in eastern Ukraine, and then the emergence of these masked men with um, uh, uniforms that didn't have insignia. The um, little green men. The little green men. Um, yeah, the little green men was a great um, kind of description of them. It kind of captured the Ukrainian view, or at least in Kiev, that they were foreign, right? Um, both, you know, little green men meaning soldiers and little green men meaning if we think of someone from Mars and an alien invader. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, the, the plan was to, to do some research in eastern Ukraine, which Fulbright did not allow me to, to do at that point. But, yeah, it was, so I was there through that time period and the presidential election that was to follow and to replace Yanukovych after he left office uh, through that was uh, the end of May. Um, as somebody who's studied Russia, studied the region, been to Ukraine, um, how big of a surprise was it for you when, in fact, Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, February of last year in what is turning out to be like the biggest land war we've seen in Europe in generations. Yeah, I mean, I was more mobilized by the, I mean, more surprised by the mobilization of troops in, I think it was November, December, um, that they were beginning put along the border, um, and then not surprised by the invasion necessarily at that point, because I don't think of Putin as someone who uh, takes actions like that lightly. And uh, there had been a lot of information coming out of the Kremlin about his really uh, derogatory attitude um, to uh, Ukraine. And the idea that of, of the Russian establishment not seeing Ukraine as an independent state, that's, that's not new. It's more the escalation of, of rhetoric that was coming from the Kremlin. 
Um, and I did have people tell me, well, certainly, um, you know, Putin wouldn't do anything because we would kick him out of the SWIFT banking uh, system or, or that the European, Europe would be, um, you know, something Europe wouldn't stand for. Um, and, you know, my, my sense of that was uh, we haven't seen that kind of unity in the past, and I don't think uh, Putin believes that unity uh, would occur. Um, and even if you want to kind of make the case that it's, it did occur and we have seen a lot of unity and some surprising developments from Germany and Sweden and Finland, um, I think, you know, Putin kind of bets on the long game and expects it to, to be fleeting. Hmm. Um, you mentioned this at the beginning of your, your, of our conversation here, but in the summary of the slide deck that you sent me, you say, I think most scholars and many political observers would recognize the political, economic, and psychological challenges associated with losing an empire. Um, at its root, is that what the invasion of the Crimean Peninsula and now Ukraine is all about? Is it about trying to, you know, regain superpower status one step at a time? No, I mean, I, I, I think that this idea of kind of great power mentality just drives the Russian foreign policy establishment. Um, the loss of, of Crimea and Ukraine are probably the two, I guess, most painful uh, aspects. Not, they're very painful for the Russian establishment. Um, and then Lenin at one point is quoted as, as saying that for uh, Russia to lose Ukraine would be like for an individual to lose their head. Right, that's and we think about uh, the Soviet Union and the breadbasket of Europe, and that's Ukraine. It was. Um, we think about work by uh, Timothy Snyder and and the Bloodlands, and kind of gives you a sense of the degree to which the lands in between Germany and and France and and Russia it was the the battlefield uh, of Europe. Um, and so when I think sometimes of um, the Great Patriotic War, which which Russia puts so much emphasis on in terms of national identity, a lot of that fighting was also done on behalf of, and done by Ukrainians. Um, so there is a, a shared history. Um, it doesn't mean it's a, a common view of that history. And for the Russian regime, I think, and Putin especially, um, there's just an opportunity with the uh, developments in in Ukraine and the revolution, I call it, and others uh, from there called the Revolution of Dignity, or sometimes referred to as the Euromaidan. But it, it, the interpretation that some scholars have provided is that this is kind of the plan B, right? So Russia would be happy with an obedient, uh, more authoritarian Ukraine. That was somewhat the trajectory under Yanukovych. He came to power in 2010, fairly free elections, um, but he was moving uh, closer toward cracking down somewhat on the judiciary, cracking down a little bit on the opposition, um, and was going to need to uh, reverse course and be a little bit more open if he's going to pursue an association agreement with the European Union. Uh, that's not something that, that Russia wanted. And in the end, it's something he chose not to do. And I think that the regime would have been fine with a uh, economically dependent Ukraine um, led by Yanukovych. Um, but when it was clear that he was not going to be in that position, uh, I, a separate plan, plan B was created or um, decided to move forward with. Um, and that involved taking taking Crimea. Now that I was surprised that it was uh, that it turned into um, an annexation. I mean, at that time period in early March or in the February in 2014, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a frozen conflict. I mean, that works very well for the for the uh, Putin regime as well. Um, that we've had frozen conflicts in the post-Soviet space since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We have the Transnistria 
uh, region of Moldova. You had Nagorno-Karabakh uh, uh, in um, what was between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We have the breakaway regions in Georgia. Um, and all those continue to make, well, well they, they create difficulties for uh, the domestic regimes that are supposed to be um, the, the country at large. Um, and so having a territorial issue or um, frozen conflict in Ukraine, I thought would be good enough uh, for, for Putin. Um, my reaction has since then is, and maybe it was too late, I guess, was that if it can get worse with Putin, it seems too, mm. to get worse. Um, and so the full annexation of Crimea, I guess that part of that was me underestimating the, the nostalgia that um, – Russian, the Russian establishment and, and a lot of average, average Russians felt for Crimea, not understanding uh, its historical place enough. But that's been very clearly demonstrated uh, since then. So I've been corrected of that. What would you say were the, the factors that made now or a year ago, February, go time to invade Ukraine? Yeah, so um, a number of different, uh, I think, issues uh, come up there. Um, one, I, my sense is there wasn't really a better time. Um, and what I mean by that is that if you just take the American case, American situation, um, and the, the, there was, we don't have a lot of agreement across uh, party lines, um, but there seems to be some degree of a, of a bipartisan consensus of wanting to pull out of foreign wars. I mean, you heard that from um, both uh President Trump, when, or candidate Trump, and uh, candidate Sanders, and the uh, ongoing uh, attitudes, uh, I guess, leading into, um, well, basically, our withdrawal from Afghanistan was a pretty good signal that that was, again, a bipartisan withdrawal, and was a signal to uh, the Russian regime that um, there was a lot of uh, war wariness uh, in, in the United States. Um, you had in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, um, the Council of Europe, which is a, a premier organization for human rights in Europe, they voted to strip Russia, uh, its delegation of its voting rights, as a sanction for its behavior. Uh, in 2019, they gave those voting rights back. And so I'm doing some research on, on why that's the case. But what's notable is France and Germany were major players who were pushing to give those voting rights back. Um, we know as well that you know Germany has strong energy ties uh, to Russia. There was the set to go online, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that was going to basically cut out uh, Ukraine to a large degree of, of transit of, of natural gas, and that was going to make Ukraine vulnerable to, to Russian power as well. Uh, so there's a, just a host of different reasons that if you're reading the international community um, that um, would suggest that there was an opportunity. I also see that think that there's opportunity from the from the Russian side. I mean, to a large degree, we saw um, in 2020 there was a constitutional changes that allows Putin to come back to power. Uh, um, the change of term limits that, so that he can seek office again in uh, 2024, saying that there's a new constitution, so his election, uh, previous elections fell under previous uh, constitution as opposed to this new constitution. And then from 2024, his six-year term, he'd, he'd serve till 2030, and then again till 2036. Um, and I just, my take on it, uh, watching the regime unfold over the last oh, 20 plus years, uh, uh, I think that the regime under Putin is kind of tired of playing the election game, uh, pretending that the elections 
uh, matter. Um, and in fact, uh, Putin's popularity uh, struggling, um, not struggling in the way that we think of it about in the American sense, but uh, dipping after he came back to power in 2012. There was a lot of speculation that as oil and gas prices would decline, that there wouldn't be as much state resources to, to prop up and subsidize the average Russian citizen. The economy wasn't really doing well. Um, and there needed to be, I think, uh, another source of legitimacy. You're not going to get legitimacy uh, through continuing to steal elections. Right? You need to get legitimacy from somewhere. And uh, going after a historic uh, piece of nostalgia uh, like Crimea, I think, helped with that. Um, and it definitely is sometimes described as, a, as a, a gift that keeps giving. It definitely led to a boost in his approval rating. And they spent a lot of time and effort uh, focusing on the patriotism and the national greatness of Russia, uh, this kind of success, right? Taking back territory, doing it without a, fu- a shot fired. Um, and then, you know, uh, I was expecting and not surprised to see some greater international adventurism as a result. So when uh, Senator John Kerry, I, I remember this distinctly, um, there was an announcement by the State Department that the Syrian regime had used chemical weapons and that the, the United States was going to have to take, make a move. And then uh, John Kerry said, well, uh, we won't have to if someone would just take their their chemical weapons. And I thought, oh, Russia's going to step right in there. And sure enough, it did. And that was an opportunity for, for Russia to demonstrate military power uh, beyond its borders. And it raised its international stature. And I think uh, there was a sense of um, growing momentum from reasserting itself as a major military power. And again, kind of the great power attitude and, and, and legacy resurfacing as a source of legitimacy. So how long was that going to last? You know, you're not going to ride those coattails forever. Um, And um, we had a Ukraine that was uh, weakened under President Trump. Um, We had, as everyone is familiar, there was uh, an impeachment uh, with uh, with Trump, um, former President Trump, and uh, kind of pressuring Volodymyr Zelensky. And... During that time period, obviously, the Ukrainian government under Zelensky didn't feel too empowered to alienate anyone. Uh, but once President uh, Trump lost office, lost uh, the election in 2020, left office, um, scholars of Ukrainian politics point out that Zelensky felt more emboldened to move against uh, corruption, uh, specifically corruption among those oligarchs with Russian ties, which was another signal to the uh, Putin regime that it was worried about where Ukraine was going. And so from that perspective, the concern of, you know, if we don't, or if the Russian regime didn't act sooner than later, then it Maybe was a step problem. step in before it was too too late, I guess. Yeah, you know, before way. you lose them, before they become too oriented and too closely associated with, with Europe and, and the West. We had a, another guest who was on campus for one of these lectures, uh, Dr. Catherine Stoner. Mm-hmm. She's at Stanford University. Yeah. And, um, and we talked a lot about the, the, the domestic impact the war has had on Russia, on its economy, on its mm-hmm. people, on its morality. I mean, it's, um, um, you know, not the morality. What the, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's morale. Morale, On yeah. its morale. And um, could they have bitten off more than they can chew in the sense that the longer-term goal of, you know, regaining some sort of global superpower status, you know, they're losing a lot of people are leaving. Uh, they've lost a lot of troops. Uh, the economy's taken a pretty big hit. You know, what do you think? Well, I, I think that um, you know, we might go back to... Uh, Morality, right, and the loss of morality. Um, I mean, the, the the mobilization at the end of the last summer 
um, was striking from the perspective that Russia didn't close its borders. And you had a lot of talented, opposition-oriented Russians leave, and Putin seemed fine with that. And so I, I do think that that, was, that exit um, left those who couldn't leave or who didn't want to leave. And those, some of those who wanted to leave and couldn't leave were vulnerable. Uh, they have families, they have children, they have jobs, um, uh, and they're not in a position to leave. And so um, those are going to be obedient as a result. And I'm really just struck by the unsilent voices that we see, especially on these uh, pro-war telegram channels that are getting a lot of coverage um, in the media, and the lack of morality, I, I, I guess. I mean, the, the, uh, there's um, a far-right telegram channel that uh, was cited um, by the opposition-oriented news outlet Medusa um, that you know, it's called male state, right? Um, M-A-L-E state, right? Mm -hmm. And this uh, kind of support for these executions, um, the support for uh, calling for more um, war crimes, basically, in, in Ukraine. And that that's the, uh, th th that those are so present, right? It's not, and I don't, I don't want to say that that's, I'm, I hope, uh, I'm confident that's not the majority opinion, but that's the, that is the um, the dominant voice, and that's a scary thought, right? Uh, and there, it kind of I think illustrates the amount of fear that a lot of average Russians have about trying to speak out. And from, I mean, I don't know if people are familiar with this recent case. There's a middle schooler who drew a picture, an anti-war picture, uh, maybe a month ago now, and she was taken away. She was uh, had only one parent, a father, um, and she was taken away from him and put in an orphanage. Um, and uh, he was arrested. Um, I, I think he tried to flee, went to Belarus, and I think Belarus just re announced that they were going to be extraditing him to Russia. And those kinds of, you know, it's just an anecdote, but it's 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 striking that a middle schooler could get in trouble and be taken from her family for an anti-war drawing. And it's not the only one. I mean, you can there's lots of uh, good reporting. Uh, there were used to be. We'll see what happens now um, with the going this. Uh, I guess the arrest of the Wall Street journalist, um, Wall Street Journal journalist, um, whether or not we're going to get as much information about what's going on in Russia. But um, there are people who have small acts of protests, um, tattoos, uh, anti-Putin tattoos, or just uh, criticisms uh, in in class or uh, on uh, uh, social media who find themselves, um, for lack of a better word, being snitched on, uh, being informed on and it sounds a lot more like uh, the Stalinist era than it does um, you know early Putin or or definitely you know the Yeltsin era so um, we are unfortunately pretty much out of time but my last right. question and you got to keep it fairly short is sure. are you surprised with how, how things have played out over the past year uh, all the experts I've talked to seem like they're kind of surprised that it's gone the way it's gone and there's been as much collective support as there's been for Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, collective support from the perspective of, of Europe, right? I mean, yeah. in, in terms of uh, international support, it's, it's outside of Europe. It is um, definitely a mixed bag. Um, I was expecting much more. Uh, I'm surprised by the success of the, of the Ukrainian military, um, for sure, thanks to, um, I think, good NATO training, th thanks to a strong national identity and this desire to defend them, their homeland. Um, I was surprised, not necessarily by the poor performance of the Russian military. It's um, um, one; it was 
the average I think Russian soldier wasn't informed about the what they're actually getting into. I was more surprised by the uh, what seemed to be poor intelligence uh, um, that either the Kremlin had or um, the military had. I mean, it, it just seems as though uh, Putin's regime told Putin what he wanted to hear, right? And they didn't recognize the degree to which Ukraine in 2022 is not Ukraine in 2014. And part of that, a large part of that, was uh, Russia's doing, Putin's doing. The annexation of Crimea, the strengthening of national identity, the preparedness for war, the fear of uh, the Russian neighbor, a lack of trust, which was, you know, back in the back minds of, of Ukrainians, but was front and center after this. And that... Um, really just changed the dynamic in many ways. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I appreciate your time. My guest has been Dr. Brian Morosky. He's associate professor in the Department of Political Science at University of Florida. Dr. Morosky, thank you so much for your time and so for your insights. Thank you for having me. Dr. Morosky was on campus on Thursday, April 16th to give a talk titled Putin's War in Ukraine and its Consequences. His talk was the final in a series of presentations for the 2023 Florida Gulf Coast University Provost's Seminar Series that's presented in partnership with the Naples Discussion Group. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear all of our episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. <laughs>